You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, good morning, or afternoon, or night, sure, <laughs> but uh, happy Wednesday. It's Boxing Day, so I hope you really enjoy your Christmas, and thanks for tuning in on Boxing Day. If you are, you're, you're a loyal fan, I appreciate that. If you're not, no worries, you can become a loyal fan, and I'll appreciate that too. But um, yes, yeah, so happy Boxing Day, and happy close to the end of the new year. Uh, today's uh, podcast is with me. And only me, no guest. And so if you want to hear more of, more of my voice, please continue on. But if you don't, then, and if you don't want to listen, well, that's unfortunate and that sucks, but oh well, I tried. <laughs> Today's podcast is mainly about uh, me, my career journey, and just, I guess, getting to know a little bit more about me. Um, it kind of came about as an idea where I thought, hey, let's do a holiday special and it's kind of my gift to you. I hope it's a gift. Um, <laughs> and it also came about where I thought, you know, I, I've had multiple people constantly reach out to me, students and colleagues, about um, wanting to know more about my career journey. And some of my listeners have friends who listen have been saying, yeah, you know, why don't you talk about your own journey? And so I thought, hey, yeah, why don't I do an episode just show just purely about that and you know, try to kind of touch upon certain aspects of the journey that may not be obvious. Um, and so, yeah, no script, nothing. I just press record and just record it onwards from this little recording studio here in uh, Vancouver. So, yeah, I hope this is something that you enjoy. And a quick also shout out. Um, I said I would give people shout outs if they reviewed or left a review on about the podcast and so a quick shout out to uh, Chris for leaving a review on iTunes thanks a lot Chris um, I really appreciate it and thanks a lot for also reading it as well and so for you as well my other listeners don't forget to support the podcast by rating it on iTunes um, if you give it a five if you give it five stars it really helps uh, getting it really out there to other people and also if you leave a review as well that also really helps too and I'll definitely give you a shout out as well when the review uh, goes up. And yeah, if you also have ideas of other guests that I could interview or you have questions um, or feedback you want to give on the podcast, also definitely reach out to me at www.oldmandan.com. And there's a tab there where you can just fill out a contact form. And if you also want to uh, listen to my news or read my newsletter where I list out something I learn every day. So it's seven days of learning and also the weekly essay that I sent out. Then you know also subscribe to the the site as well. And I definitely appreciate that. But yeah, without further ado, here is my chat with me. Hello, hello. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For. Uh, today on the podcast, it's something different. Um, this is a bit of a uh, Christmas special that I've been thinking of doing. And so today, there is no guest. It's just me. So 
for those of you who really wanted a guest and you know you were mistakenly or potentially just frauded by the title that you would have read you can leave I guess um you know it's just going to be me talking so if you don't like my voice and you really wanted someone else that I'm sorry I'm just I'm gonna have to disappoint you but for the rest of you who want to just hear more of my voice because you don't get to hear it enough in other podcasts then yeah this is the one that you want to listen to so stick around so today's uh podcast interview is just with myself and there is no one else in this room I'm recording from my parents place out in Vancouver as I go out to visit them for the holidays on an annual basis so I found a nice recording room here to talk to you my lovely listeners and the idea for this podcast was just around you know it's the holiday season and iTunes tends to not be very good with approving podcast episodes on time and I really didn't want to use one of my guests interviews because they gave me their valuable time and I was afraid of having someone else a third party mess it up so I figured I'd rather take the hit than have one of my guests take a hit um, even after you know like they've given me their valuable time so yeah so uh, I decided why don't I go through just a little bit of my story, uh, a bit of my own career. And I, I, I did intend to record this um, for some time just because nowadays I do get a lot of university students um, and also just some young professionals just reaching out to me. Um, I'd say much more after I've had the podcast out and they'd ask questions of, hey, you know, how, like I'm an accounting student or I'm an auditor, I'm a consultant and I want to get into a hedge fund, what should I do? Or I've had some people even ask me about, you know, I'm thinking of starting a company, what do you think? And I'm obviously not qualified um, to advise on like startups, but um, I'm always happy to have you know, chat, and I'm definitely honored that people want to hear my advice or just my opinions, really, uh, and just hear about my experiences. But I figured, you know, it'd be, you know, effective if I could actually point them to a podcast recording where they can just read about, or sorry, not read about it, but listen about it um, in terms of just what I went through and just how I thought about each step of my own journey. And yeah, so I figured what the heck, let's just record it and just see how it goes. And so this is a new kind of episode style, um, especially because I'm just going to be talking by myself. And so I'll obviously appreciate feedback. Like if you don't want me to do another solo episode in the future, just please let me know. Um, You can reach me um, in the contact pages in my website, www.oldmandan.com. And there's a contact me site and reach reach out to me, I think. Um, tab and so definitely just go there shoot me a note saying hey don't do this or if you really liked it yeah please go there and also just say hey do this more Um, and if you had more questions that you would have liked me to answer that also helps too um, because then I can just accumulate more questions so when I have enough I can do another solo episode so yeah that's kind of the overview on that so now let's kind of get, I guess, get into the story, story time. Um, so I usually begin most podcast interviews where I ask the guest to tell me a little bit more about their beginnings. Um, 
just so I can get a better understanding of you know where did you come from, how was your background shaped, and so little story about me. Um, I I was born in South Korea and lived there for about five years, and after that I moved to Hong Kong as part of um, my dad's work. So I lived in Hong Kong for about five years and. Everyone asked me, "Oh, so are you fluent in Chinese?" And I and I disappoint them by saying, "No, I went to a British international school just because I was there during like 1997-ish, and so that was just after the Brits had left, and but their influence was still very strong, and so I learned English from the get-go, and I learned a bit of Mandarin just writing, but I was really bad at it, and I just know some basic Cantonese to survive, just having lived in Hong Kong for five years." And then after that, I moved to Vancouver, so the first city here in Canada. So I lived in Vancouver for about eight years and did my high school uh, as well as partial of my elementary school here. And Vancouver is practically Hong Kong with much nicer weather and just much more space. So I actually continued my Cantonese education here just by having a lot of Chinese friends. I uh, just didn't change. And after Vancouver, I moved over to Waterloo to uh, study accounting at the University of Waterloo. Um, I was there for about you know four years, just four to five years, just on and off, just because we had the co-op program. And so with co-op, I, I was working out of Toronto, and I'd say um, just ballpark. I would split my time so far as I've been in Waterloo for about four years, and I've been living in Toronto for about three to four years. And in between that period of Toronto, I moved to Calgary for just under a year um, when I went to go work for the buy side fund out there and then I came back to Toronto and so that's kind of my uh, origin story in a nutshell and I think another popular question I like asking my guests is what did you want to be when you were younger for me I wanted to be a kind of zoologist like I, I said zoologist I remember in my primary school kind of career aspiration just because I didn't have a word for what it was. What I, what I really wanted to be was, I, I was just obsessed with animals, specifically reptiles. I was obsessed with lizards and snakes. So my favorite place to go was the zoo or the aquarium when I was younger. I also had an obsession with sharks. And so I bought, a, I had a, my bookcase was filled with encyclopedias and animals or World War II history books and I, what, I had a lot of car magazines that looked at Jeeps, like those Jeep Wranglers or just the Toyota Jeeps, those Outback Jeeps, and the, the kind of th stuff that, you know, the crocodile hunter Steve Irwin would be driving because that was my favorite show back then. And so I just always had this idea of that, you know, I want to travel the world, I want to be working with animals. I, I want to see more of what is really out there and just constantly just being nomadic and just always being on the move. And I think I've somewhat kind of been keeping to that so far. You know, I've lived in three different countries so far and um, six, six to seven cities now. If you could call Waterloo a city on its own, I'd say it's more of a town. But yeah, and so that was what I wanted to be when I was younger. And I continue to go back to that theme of having a desire to wander out and that continues on right now like you know I've been in North America for a while and I definitely have desires to live abroad again and move my life to uh, Europe as well as Asia it's just I think having been a global investor in my previous role it was just so obvious that um, 
bigger things were happening in Europe and Asia. And I felt that being North American, we tend to actually be very sheltered from vast growth in those areas just because at least for Canadians, we just see our neighbors down there. And I, you know, I'm quoting one of the British couples I met um, that I talk about in one of my essays, on com- just random conversations with strangers. And they hint at the North American arrogance that they feel when they come meet with North Americans here. Um, and I think there is a bit of that. I think I, I'm a victim of a bit of that as well, where, you know, Tend to, you tend to, I think it's a human bias where you tend to think that you're in, at the center of the universe wherever you are. But I think being an investor that was strictly looking at non-North American companies, it definitely did open my eyes up to how quickly everything else around us would be growing and how there's just opportunity everywhere. And so, yeah, that's my long spiel in moving around or hopefully wanting to uh, settle out somewhere else and just constantly move. And so my career path specifically, um, not a lot of people know about this, but it kind of started when I had my first internship at a startup. So I worked for a magazine startup. Um, It was a company that was trying to, it was called Magni. I don't know if they're still around, but it was a company that was trying to um, have digital magazines. So it was more of a publisher. And so or publisher slash platform where we would have all these other online magazines put it up there and people could click the various pages and items and they could buy stuff and when I was there I did quote unquote air quotes here uh, business development which was a fancy way of calling it a um, call center or you know cold caller so I'd be I'd a, I would go out and find all the different magazine companies that are out there in all of North America and just have a list of hundreds of magazine companies that I'll just compile and just spend the whole day for hours just cold calling people. And I hated it. I had huge anxiety making these calls and I just remember I just, I would dread uh, making these calls. I would spend most of my time trying to be efficient or effective in like making these systems of, okay, if I had made these many calls a day, then it, I could achieve these kind of results and I should go out like these kinds of areas or these kinds of sites would be best for finding the right uh, magazine companies. But, you know, I still had to reach out to them. And so eventually I did and, you know, just gripped my teeth and just constantly called them, had a, had a few, you know, that told me to fuck off and a few that were really nice and we just chatted about their business. And I thought that was the coolest part. And we had a kind of competition internally with all the other biz dev people. And I ended up being the one that uh, was able to get the most number of publishers on to our platform. And so I got to go on in-person sales meetings where I saw my supervisor trying to hit on the client and trading phone numbers, not really for business purposes. It was very obvious that, you know, he just wanted to sleep with her, and then he told me he just wanted to sleep with her during the car ride back. And I remember as an eighteen-year-old kid just thinking, "This is so weird. Is this what a normal job is like?" And so that was a neat experience in the startup realm in um, downtown Vancouver. And so after that, uh, the co-op kind of period started in my university, where you work four months, you go back to school. And so my first job out of school uh, during school was at KPMG um, as a auditor in the financial institutions team. And I, I picked that team because 
the way my co-op schedule worked, um, I would be that, that was the team that would have the most amount of work during that season and during the fall season because they had all these banks that had fall year ends. And so I decided, yeah, that's that makes sense. I'll have the most amount of work um, if I join this team. So if I have more work, I'll have more learning opportunities. So being the type A person I was, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And I also had ideas of just, I, I picked accounting because, um, okay, I think that's a, that's a separate story on its own. But so when, when I was in high school, I, uh, I initially wanted to be an engineer. So back to being a very type A student, um, like I, I played on like three, three sports teams. I was the president of like six clubs at the same time. I graduated with, you know, 40 extra credits and I needed to. And so, you know, like I, I think in one year I had, no, the normal is like eight courses. I'd take as many as like 10 to 11 courses a year. So I was that kind of, that was kind of, that kind of student, um, very obsessive and maniacal. And so I, I remember I, I planned out my entire uh, high school education. So I would be able to um, have, I would have finished all my university requirement courses by grade 11, so that by grade 12, I could just focus entirely on extracurriculars and I'll, my early acceptances to universities would initially just be um, easier because they would have all these completed courses. So I'd be guaranteed all these early admissions. Um, nothing would be contingent. So I orchestrated all that for engineering because I had this desire to, first I wanted to be an architect and I did architecture courses outside of school and I learned I had no real talent in drawing straight lines or whatnot. And so at that time I said, okay, I'm not gonna do this. Um, what about like weaponry? I was still obsessed with World War II things. So what if I designed tanks or missiles? So I decided maybe I'll go to mechanical engineering. And so that's what I was thinking for my entire duration of university. But I applied to business as a backup just because I knew, you know, I, I liked the idea of wearing suits, going to tall buildings and working skyscrapers. I liked money a lot. I've been managing my own finances ever since I was a little kid. Um, like I used to invest in mutual funds with my parents' consent when I was, you know, in, uh, I think just starting out of high school and stuff. And I also, I think the big turning point though was when People are telling me how when you go to engineering, you don't get to see your roommates or you don't, you're not very social and everyone there is antisocial. You know, when you're young, you just believe these kind of stereotypes or you read these forums that kind of give you the wrong idea. But those were, those were the informations that I had. And I decided that, no, I, I love talking to people. I love all these clubs I'm doing. I love being, you know, the president of this and president of that and just leading hundreds, like I was, when I was in high school, I'd be leading hundreds of kids in my organization. So I loved doing that kind of stuff. So I thought, maybe I'll just go to business. You know, I, I like currency. I like money. Um, I want to be rich. And business seems to be more about meeting people and talking with people. So I'll do business. So that's how I ended up going to accounting because the idea was, okay, I knew about Waterloo because they had a great engineering program. Oh, but they have a great accounting program. And accounting is a language of business. So if I want to do business, I should be fluent in the lingo. So that was the idea. Bam. So went to accounting um, and went to accounting, did not know what the big four was. Everyone said, that's what you want to do. And so I said, okay, I'll go into the big four. But I did not know that I signed up to be a finance major not knowing the difference between finance and accounting. And lo and behold, the school did not allow me to apply to accounting jobs in their job portal. 
and they did not allow me to go to any of the networking events. Um, so yeah, like so much for inclusivity. And so I found that out way too late and I snuck into all the networking events. Like I went there early and pretended like I was an accounting major when I was a declared finance major and uh, snuck in there, just chatted with people, networked a lot. Um, and so I had to apply to the accounting jobs uh, as an external person that was not affiliated with University of Waterloo because I couldn't use our school's job portals. And so I ended up eventually taking that path to go to KPMG. And so it was a, it was a very rare thing to see a finance grad do that and or a finance major person do that. And so, yeah, that started my accounting career. Um, at KPMG, I, I think I was just this wide-eyed kid who was just new to Toronto. That was my first experience of Toronto, coming from Vancouver. So you get to this city that has skyscrapers, like I'm on the 48th floor and thinking, wow, this is amazing. I am set for life. Everyone around me is telling me I am set for life. And so I decide to just take it easy, you know, just party it up. I'm just drinking hard every week and just really living it up, thinking, yeah, you know, this this is a life, just wearing the suit and auditing all these banks. I'm this super important person. And so that kind of went on uh, for about three, for three co-op terms. So I consider, so I've been through three busy seasons. So accountants, we have this period called busy season. It's generally between January to April. But for my team, it was from September to April. So we had two busy seasons. Like it's kind of split up into like four month blocks. And so that's the period when accounts die. <laughs> we, you know, work 80 to 120 hours a week and you just don't see your friends and people's marriages fall apart, yada, yada. Like those things happen. <laughs> I've, I've uh, heard stories or witnessed um, those things definitely happening and not, but not to scare anyone, you know, there's plenty of cases where that doesn't happen. I had friends who only worked 50 hours a week and got home scot-free and enjoyed their life too. But, uh, yeah. So I went through three seasons of that and I, when I joined, I really, the next goal was, you know, being type A, okay, I got into the accounting firm, what do I do now? Oh, well, everyone wants to be a partner, I think, so who... What's the fastest way? Mm, the average is ten years. Or the guy, the guy that who interviewed me got it in seven years. So then that became a new goal. Okay, let's get it faster than seven years. Let's go for six to seven years. And so how do I do that? Well, let's specialize clientele because everyone tells you you want to specialize. So then let's specialize in the hardest clientele, which was investment banks at the time. So broker dealers. It was the hardest because they had two year ends compared to other companies that usually have one year end. It had two year ends because there's a separate regulator year end for investment banks. Um, by IROC and the Ontario Securities Commission. And so that's what I had to specialize in. And it was an, a great learning experience, air quotes, in terms of figuring out that this was not the career path for me really quickly. Um, I think something I find is really unfortunate is that I wish I was able to take out more learnings from that experience just on a technical standpoint, but I think something that I allude to often to the nature of audit, especially in the earlier years, which is unfortunate, is a lot of what you do is execution. Like I'd say about 90, 90% of your time is on execution and maybe about 5% learning and 5% thinking. Um, just because it, just the nature is you're at a tight deadline, you are 
always understaffed. So you are just pumping out audit work, and audit work is taking a time. Does this number match here? Does this number match there? Why is this number working this way? And you are just looking to pump things out, and you're still working hundreds of hours a week just trying to pump things out. So, yeah, I don't blame people um, when they tell me, yeah, I, I, I don't ever learn much because you sometimes you just don't have the time. Like, you're not going to sit when you go home at 10 p.m. go, okay, I think I'm going to teach myself this now for the next two hours and maybe sleep about four or five hours until I have to go, to go back to work. You just don't. And so I think that was just the unfortunate thing about um, just the nature of the audit piece. I don't know what it's like right now. That's just how it was like when I was there. And But I got a good idea of, okay, this is what my life would be like for the next two to three years if I did come back. And I think the benefit of having specialized early um, was also that, yeah, because I was so specialized, I knew specific investment bank clients inside out from previous busy seasons. And so by the time... Uh, of my third co-op term, I was 20 years old, 20, yeah, I was 20 years old, 20 or 21 years old. Um, I was already doing audit sections that were done by a manager um, that's, you know, usually three to four years a senior from me. And I'd, I remember I'd be teaching new hired seniors how to audit investment banks. I had full-time, you know, level two staffs working under me because I was much more knowledgeable. And I remember one guy was very upset when he found out that I was 21 and I was, and he was, I think, 27 or something, and I was telling him to make photocopies for me. Um, he, he thought I was much older, which is, I guess, a nice compliment given everyone thinks I look 18. Um, but I digress, yeah. That was the um, kind of audit experience in a nutshell where I was able to also cultivate great relationships where I had this amazing partner who I could always confide in, and you know, I I liked being honest, and I learned that during my audit time when I remember my first performance evaluation. You know, those things you do at the end of the year. I wrote down in term, in the comment section of what what should you improve on, or what's what um, something like you know what's your weakness or something. And I wrote I completed work without without knowing what I was doing. I just copied what happened in the prior year. And my manager loved it because he said that was the most honest uh, self-assessment anyone had ever done because it's probably the most true self-assessment that anyone, uh, that you know, everyone else experiences in their first year of audit. And yeah, so yeah, like I've, I have no idea what I was doing. Like no one was teaching me stuff. I, we all just got thrown into a client and we had to just do it. And I was trying to learn and they're trying to teach me, but you know, like I counting just was not my strong suit at school like you know I'd never learned it in high school so I just wasn't getting it quickly and so that was a that's something I kept on going um, taking on with me just being honest about everything so when I uh, confided in my partner by my third co-op term I was asking him hey man is this is this what my life is going to be like for the next two to three years and he was very straightforward he's like yep and he was saying yeah you know we can't really make you manager now because that's just not protocol. You can't just come back and grad from graduation and just be a manager right away. You got to go through the positions and the ranks, and yeah, you'll probably be doing similar things. Maybe we'll try to give you more learning opportunities. And so I thought, yeah, well, you know, then as a you know as a friend, would you tell me to come back for my final co-op term? Um, do you think I'll have learning opportunities still left? And he's like, no, you won't. He was very 
excuse me, he was very uh, candid about that and saying, and saying, yeah, no, you won't. Um, you should look somewhere else. You should try something different if you really want to learn. And so that was a great uh, conversation where I came out of the room saying, okay, cool. I have its blessing and I'm going to reject my return offer, which at that time was considered crazy by a lot of my friends. And they would say things like, oh man, how could you give up like, like this? It's the real, you know, it's just, you were set for life and you're just quitting and we all wanted that position and you had it and now you're just throwing it away. Um, you know, my parents just didn't get it. You know, they immigrated to Canada to give me this great opportunity. And now I was just saying, yeah, nope, the stability thing. Yep, not, I'm not down for it. Just not what I want to do. And so, yeah, they thought I was nuts too. But I think the the caveat though is that uh, I, I could still get a job back. Like I'd been in there once, I could get it again. Like I'd proven that I could do a job well. And even to this day, when I still catch up with that partner, um, he's kind of like a mentor figure of mine. And I still grab coffee with him. He still hints at, hey man, do you, do you want to audit? <laughs> do, have you ever cha- have you changed your mind? We got a spot for you. So I think the lesson there was um, just do your job, do your job really well, try to be the best at it, and just cultivate good relationships. And you just don't know um, what can come out of that. And so yeah, after that, I left and I moved over to consulting, and. That was that was during my last co-op term where I moved into management consulting, and that alone I think was also unorthodox at the time. Not many people, I'd say maybe one, one or two, I think two people actually, from the upper years had made the switch um, from being an auditor to a management consultant. And the stereotype there was that people who were auditors were so narrow-minded that they won't be able to be a management consultant because apparently consultants are people who can think big picture. Um, yeah, because apparently big companies are great at innovating. <laughs> and so that was the you know running talk there. And so that was another tricky piece where I started then, okay, how am I going to break in there? And I, I, I actually didn't think about this strategically, but I think in hindsight what I've been doing was just, just really networking and cold emailing people. And so I just which just a bunch of people. Um, I didn't really know what consulting was even at that time. And so the way I actually discovered consulting was I I initially left accounting to want to be a trader. I wanted to be a prop trader, a proprietary trader, that, so guys that trade the bank's money. This was the guys I was make, just raking it in before 07, 08. Um, and they're also the guys that went bust and their job no longer exists. In, most places and so but that's what I wanted to be because I was an investment bank auditor and what they seemed looked cool and one of my managers at the time was an ex-trader before and she was telling me about her life before and I thought that's really cool I think that's what I'm gonna do um just because you know I am an I'm an athlete I was still a part of it at the time and I think that's when like, it kind of coincided with my period of when I was uh, prepping for Worlds and I, was set, like, I set the world record a couple times in powerlifting at that. And I, I was trying to catch that thread of, you know, I, I love powerlifting. What, what is out there that's like powerlifting? And I hit up on trading, take my first course in quantitative finance, no idea what that is. And first class professor tells me, hey, uh, so if you're not a quant, you can't be a trader. Prop trading is dead. 
that was my job and I can't do it anymore. And so that's why I'm here teaching you guys, long story short. And so that's when I thought, oh, crap, I quit a job that was so stable to do a job that doesn't even exist for me. So what do I do now? And so I went to talk to the professor and asked him, hey, this, this is my story. What should I do? I am not a quant. And he said, okay, well, you should look at long-term investing. So I thought, okay, cool. I'll search long-term investing in Google. And they showed Warren Buffett. No idea who he was. As a third-year business student, I can understand how embarrassing that might be. But at that time, I thought, oh, this guy is the second richest man in the world. I only knew about Bill Gates. So what does he do? What's Berkshire Hathaway? What's this value investing thing? And I just constantly just read more about it. And I decided to fall in love with the idea of investing. And so as I'm brooding over this, as I'm watching countless YouTube videos of Buffett just giving talks and slowly branching out the idea of value investing in stocks, I started to apply for jobs. And that's where I discovered consulting, where it seemed like, hey, this is a job where I could just talk to a lot of people and consult as a verb means, you know, give advice. I love giving advice. You know, I was like a life coach to a lot of my friends, even in, as an auditor. Okay, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, so I looked up what consulting was, seemed to kind of hit the bucket, at least on what they showed on paper. And that's how I kind of went down that rabbit hole. And it, I found a team um, at Deloitte where I could get my CA wilding management consulting work. And so I thought, that's perfect. It's two birds with one stone. And so I could continue my accounting education. And so I would really not have lost anything just maybe a potential like senior account promotion, but whatever, and didn't want to be one anyways. So embarked on this consulting path and quickly learned that, yeah, we, we don't solve that many business problems, or at least not the kind of problems that I wanted to solve. And I think it was just the nature of the work where, you know, what kind of clients can afford Deloitte to do consulting work for them it's gonna be really big billion dollar clients. And my experience auditing public billion, multi-billion dollar companies has been that you never get to see the full business because the, your scope of work is so specific to that line of business. Like I'd be doing the investment bank of a large big five national bank. So same thing with consultant. You are looking at like one credit card team or one credit card product of an entire bank and doing that kind of work there, or like one system implementation of this large insurance organization. And so that was kind of my experience with it. But I think, I think though, overall, it was a much cooler experience than accounting. I think I've learned way more um, in consulting just because of the way I learned, which is by talking to a lot of people constantly. And what I liked about consulting was the, the difference I felt was consulting was the the work of you're making shit happen. Um, you know, shit wasn't there before and you worked on it and now it's there. Like I was on a project where, yeah, like we made an insurance company. Now there is an insurance company out there. It didn't exist before, but after us, now it is a company and I am a user, a customer of that company. Or, oh, this credit card didn't exist before and boom, now this credit card exists and I was part of it compared to accounting where I felt it's more, okay, this stuff has happened. Make sure that none of this is going to blow up, you know, or make sure that this is right. And so it was more of a retroactive viewpoint, which I was never really a big fan of. I've always been someone that always liked to look out 
and think of like you know, daydream and think about the possibilities. So I thought that was a good fit of consulting. And so that's when, um, after consulting, I thought about, hey, you know, I, you know, I did my co-op term here and this sounds like a pretty cool gig. I'm learning more about this consulting world. It sounds really interesting. I think there's way more business problems that I could really try to tackle. And I just want to see more industries. You know, I'm, I've only looked at banks as an auditor and I want to try other companies too. And this is what I'm learning as I'm reading with all these investing books where there's just so many cool companies out there to read about and learn from. And so that's when I started just massively networking um, with other consulting firms uh, like McKinsey, Bain, BCG. Like I cold emailed a bunch of people. I also went to a bunch of conferences and I think, um, you know, I think those were very instrumental in helping me get all these interviews and getting all these early interviews um, whilst I was even at Deloitte just doing my co-op. And, you know, long story short, I didn't get any of the offers. I think if I got the offer, I would have gone. And most, on like, just candidness. And I think it was hard. It was hard because I had um, all the major consulting firm interviews and I just bombed out of each one. Um, I, you know, I, I was part of like a special team or like a course team that also spent hundreds of hours doing cases, practice cases as well. Like, and so that was tough uh, going through that because it's, it was like the first kind of big failing I had where you, know, you, you think that, okay, I have all these interviews. Like, come on, it's like a 33% chance. Of course I'm gonna hit that. You know, I've had hundreds of hours of case interviews that I've done. And you know, sometimes just things just don't work out. And I thought my, my role was over, but obviously that was me being dramatic in hindsight. And so, yeah, I think um, that was a good experience though where I got my feet wet in this idea of just networking and cold emailing people because I had no contacts and I just messaged people on LinkedIn, found people's emails and just cold emailed them and said, hey, I want to learn about what you do. I want to learn what the difference between these two firms are. And that was a great, um, I think, intro to the skill that I was cultivating. And so after I, jo- after I joined Deloitte full-time, um, I knew that, okay, well, the benefit here still is that I can still get my CA, uh, my accounting designation, I think it's the CPA now, um, while doing consulting work. So let's maximize that. How can I maximize this? Um, and so I also picked a lot of my projects based on, am I, am I doing work that um, I would have been doing at these other like big consulting firms like McKinsey or BCG or BAME? And so a lot of my projects that I had were ones where, for example, like I do... Um, what, do you, what do you call those? Uh, utility companies. Yeah, so I do like a utility company project where they hired, they brought us in because they had BCG before, but they didn't like what BCG did. So we came in and we did a different kind of scope work um, on like operational efficiency and just cost reduction work. And so that was really cool. Um, another big project I had was on like renewable energies and it was for a mining client, and it was something where we were actually competing um, head-to-head with McKinsey on, like, they were doing the same, like, literally, they were literally doing the same thing as us. The client just had two consulting firms just on retainer, and just was gonna pick the solution that was better. And so, those were, like, really great experiences, and I still think I've, my time in consulting, I've had an amazing experience. I was able to do everything from 
consulting start uh, consulting startup companies to trying to help create like an internal venture fund with, within Deloitte um, and just having a myriad of different industry exposure uh, while, I was, while I was there. And during that time, I still continued to focus on um, getting a career as a value investor. And I think because I was at um, Deloitte or because I was in this consulting role and I was trying to get everything I could, um, I was at this idea of, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to do this two-year consulting thing and do an MBA, which is what everyone in consulting does. And so, let's be frank, this this brand's just not as strong as McKinsey or BCG, so why don't I just go straight into the value investing world? Why don't I just find a way to get into the, the field that I wanted to originally? And so that was the idea behind all that. And that was about a full year and a half process, really. Honestly, I knew that's what I would do. And I also knew that I had a very unorthodox background. I didn't have investment banking or equity research, which are considered, which were considered to be, you know, the staples. And to do this process, that's what you do. You do two years of banking or equity research, and that's how you get into the buy side. But I didn't want to do neither of those. Um, I'd gone to plenty of conferences and actually also met with, I think about you know, easily 10 to 20 bankers and equity research guys to learn that I felt what they did was not really related to value investing. And I didn't see much, many transferable skills or didn't find the work itself even sounding remotely enjoyable. And so I decided not to take that route and continued on the consulting route. And I think I've had friends who've done consulting and investment, and investment banking and Every one of them have told me that the work in consulting was way more interesting and, and they've learned way more in consulting than banking. So that's a caveat there, um, just from my experience. But yeah, and so when I, as soon as I started full-time at Deloitte, I, I remember the first week I just started sending off cold emails and I was kind of used to it at this point. I've done cold calling, I've reached out to people for consulting. Um, so I compiled a full list of all the uh, buy side public equity, you know, hedge fund guys in Toronto and also kind of greater Canada and picked out, okay, which, you know, which one of these guys, um, which one of these funds have a strategy that's more aligned to what I would like to do, like fundamental, bottom-up, stock-picking, very Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger-esque, uh, aka like value investing. And so I made a tighter list of those companies. So I you know, didn't look at companies that only did oil and gas or didn't look at companies that did currencies or commodities cause, just because I'm just not interested in that. You could make money from it, sure, but I'm just not interested in that. So I'm not going to look at that. Yeah, and so that's... Um, and so I had this full list, and that's how I knew who I should, con- who I should contact. And so as soon as I started my first week in Deloitte, just started reaching out to people immediately, um, trying to say, tell myself, okay, let's have a goal, three people a week, and just pumping out email requests like that. And I slowly started to meet people, and I wrote about it in one of my other articles on networking, but essentially I think I reached out to about between 60 to 70 different buy-side managers, a little mix of um, some private equity firms in there as well as, well, as, well as hedge funds. And I met... About, uh, I think it's about 25, 20, 25 to 30 people. This is a great hit rate, and I was extremely thankful that the people in the industry were 
really kind and just so generous with their time. And it, I, I realized the reason for that was because a lot of these folks got in the same way. They reached out to people that were in the buy side and they learned about what that fund did, what that person did, and that was how they got their chance at an interview and eventually effectively their job. And so because they experienced that before, they were all very open to paying it forward. And so that's also what I've been doing myself um, when people reach out to me. And so I was really thankful for that. And that was a great way for me to learn more about the role in, you know, the buy side. What do you do as an investor? Although, I would, to be frank, I think I spent close to about 50 to 60, 50 to 70 percent of my time during these coffees just trying to sell myself more <laughs> just because I just wanted I just wanted to be an investor so bad. I just wanted to get into a hedge fund so badly that I kind of fell into my own trap of pitching myself um, instead of it being more purely informative where it should have been you know, 90% about them to learn about what you do what is it like being in an institutional fund? What is the fund's process like? Um, and some conversations were like that, but I think in hindsight, having more of that would have been great to um, just have a better idea of. But yeah, so during this period, um, I'm constantly trying to build up my own brand in the consulting firm as well as continuously build our relationships to get into the buy side the I, the goal that i had internally was okay I, I think it'll take at least a year to two years for me to break in and that that just kind of came about from i think some kind of article i was reading about people saying yeah like it takes time it's just it, you know you don't it's not like investment banking consulting or accounting where they're hiring seasons and they're hiring massive amounts of undergrads or experienced hires they're just not because the business itself is, you know, you can have a fund with five people managing billions of dollars. I mean, Warren Buffett it, with Charlie Munger and their two uh, portfolio managers, Ted and Todd, this is four people managing what? what's their market cap. Uh, I think they're a $490 billion company. And so their, their public equity portfolio, I think it's way past the $80 billion mark. Yeah, so you just have four people managing that. So they really don't need to hire anyone and so there's this huge supply demand issue because everybody wants, not everyone, but a lot of people want to get into the buy side, but you just, there aren't that many seats. And so it's just continuously meeting people and showing them your value. And I never had a finance job. And so the, the idea came to, okay, how, I'm going to, how am I going to show to them that I can add value, that I'm serious? And you know, desire alone never cuts it. So, you know, I think I... You know, in the beginning, I talk about the books I'd read, and but everyone's read those books. Everyone, if you haven't read twenty to thirty books on investing, then you really have no business trying to get into the buy side, in my opinion, because that's just easy. That's rudimentary work. You should have already watched hundreds of hours of interviews, uh, because you should really be that obsessed if you really want to get in. If you want to, you know, I when I meet students or friends, tell me, oh, I want to, go, I want to be a hedge fund guy, Dan. I'll just ask, ask them on do you want the title or do you actually love investing? Because most people just want the title. They just want to tell people that, oh, I'm an investor and I work for a hedge fund and I have a huge dick and you know, I make, I'm probably going to make all this great money. And yeah, those people never really get it. 
And when they do get it, I think they're the ones that actually perform really poorly because they shouldn't really even be there. But yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's not a hating podcast, but yeah, so oh, I lost my train of thought. Where was I on my rant? Yeah, right, okay. Back to um, my process. Yeah, so yeah, I, I wanted to find a way, okay, how can I add value? Um, talked about the books, talked about the interviews, but that just was not cutting it. And so I decided, okay, what, what do people, you know, I th- thought about what do these people do? They spend all day researching these companies, and so they probably write research reports. That's what the sell side does, and that's what they sell to the buy side. So why don't I do research reports too? And those are things that you have to do as part of the interview process anyways. So might as well have some done. And so I remember doing long research reports. So you know, I, had, I had a 15-page one, and I also had a few short three-page ones. And those would be stocks either that I had a personal stake in. So once I said you should buy, I actually bought in my own portfolio. And the ones I said you should not buy or sell, uh, I did not have. And I think the the one that I said, oh, you should not buy or sell, that was actually a report that I had to do as part of an interview. And luckily, and so that also helps having more interviews because you have to do all these reports, but that report isn't useless after you do it. You can continuously reuse it. So I also used, I used it as part of uh, my cold email strategy as well. So when I send someone a cold email, I'll attach two to three reports and say, hey, I want to get into the buy side industry. I love value investing. And to show that I'm serious here, are a few reports I've done. And so for them, they go, okay, yeah, this kid's not just someone who watched The Wolf of Wall Street and just wants to be an investor. He seems quite serious. So let's chat. And so that was actually really helpful in meeting all these people. And a lot of my coffees, actually most of my interviews came out from the coffees. I would have a coffee and the coffee would turn into an interview. And I didn't realize until afterwards and come out of the coffee and think, hmm, that was very much like an interview. And it turned out it was because then they'd call me back and say, hey, you want to come in for another round uh, to our office? And they go, oh, wow, that was an interview. Or after the coffee, um, after they kind of, I guess, felt, felt me up a bit, uh, um, just figuratively, they, the portfolio manager would say, hey, um, do you want to come in for an interview next week? And so I think that's just how the nature of like this industry works. But I also, I also think that's how most jobs should really be um, att- obtained like you should meet the people you should talk with them they should know you and that's how you should determine or they and you should both determine yeah I think I want to interview with this company instead of just massively applying to crap on LinkedIn like that thing never worked for me um, I think I would see all these hedge fund positions and I'd apply to every single one of them with detailed cover letters with my own personal story and yeah it just, it just won't hit because I just don't have a traditional background or it, maybe it just even won't even work even if I have a traditional background I'm not sure um, but I love meeting people and talking to them and I think that's the strength that I have and so I just continued to take that path even though it was it may be considered the less efficient strategy since I'm meeting people one-on-one constantly but yeah so that was a strategy that I took on and that was about a year and a half period um, and yeah I eventually I had a short list after speaking to you know 30-odd people. I had a short list of the top 
value funds that I would work for in Canada, like the ones where I could get the most learning. And I was lucky enough to get employed by one of my top choices. It just wasn't my number one choice just because it was out in Calgary. Um, but as a fund, that was it was one of the best funds that I could have worked for. And so I, this was also, I think, a good... The way I thought about it was, okay, this is actually a good way to test out my own relationship with my girlfriend, who's still my girlfriend right now. Um, we, we've been dating for six plus years, closer to seven years now. And I thought, okay, what if we try long distance? Let's, let's continue to test the strength of our relationship. We've been doing long distance back when we were in school, um, just Waterloo and Toronto long distance, so not that long for a few years. But now we were going to test it out, you know, when I'm across the country in a different time zone to test that out. Is this a viable option for our relationship? And long story short, it was not. Um, I was, we, we were able to learn that after doing it for just under a year. And so we know that next time we do want to travel somewhere else, I, I know I do, as I mentioned earlier, and I plan to, that we will have to move together. None of this, you stay here, I go there strategy. We've tra- tested it, it doesn't work. So if we want the relationship to work, we don't do that. But I would not have known, or we would not have known unless we tested this out. And so this was a good way for me to test the multiple variables um, by also going somewhere different. And so that was a really cool and fun experience on its own. You know, it's like, like what do you do when you get your quote-unquote dream job when you're like 25? And it's like, okay, well, I kind of have like 70 years more to live. Is this it? And that, those are the thoughts that really hit me. And I think that was, it continued to bug me a little. Um, I was really obviously extremely happy that I was an investor. And just, I, I don't think there's any other role um, where I, well, given my experience. Out of the three I've done, that role led to the most amount of learnings from a business perspective. So, you know, I didn't get really good technical skills on like, let's say modeling or statistics or um, a specific like code or specific tech implementation, for example. But for someone like me who just loves um, just learning about so many different things, who's just very intellectually curious about everything that's out in the world, and also especially what's outside of North America, this was a great role because I was in the Global Small, market, the global small Cap Fund, the Emerging Markets Fund, and the International Fund um, when I was at uh, the fund called MORE. Um, and we had the resources to talk to practically anyone because the fund manages about $50 billion. <laughs> and it has one of the best reputations. It's one of the best value shops in Canada. With like, they have like amazing 20-year rec- uh, performance records. So this was the, the place to be, in my opinion. And it still is a place to be in Canada, I think, for any institutional fund. Uh, I'd say it's these guys in Burgundy and maybe Pender Fund um, and Edgepoint. Those, I would say, are... Like one of the top ones, in my opinion, in terms of performance for, for an institutional fund. But, yeah, I, like, man, I'd, I, I would have weeks, certain weeks, where I would have spoke, spoken to as many as 20 CEOs in a week. I'm, no other job lets you do that. Like, you know, in, 
in, in consulting, I'll have, <laughs> I, before I joined consulting, people would tell me, oh yeah, you know, as an associate or something, you get to advise CEOs or C-suites and you get to talk to them and stuff. And the reality is, again, this is also from me speaking to other friends and like the other consulting firms like McKinsey and BCG and whatnot, you're not advising shit. Like, what are you going to do? You're a 24-year-old kid. What kind of CEO is going to listen to what you have to say? No, 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 no. You do the work. You tell your partner or your manager, and they will tell or maybe try to talk to you. I've had, I've had consulting engagements where the partner is not even senior enough to get in the room with the CEO. So that's just a reality. Like, CEOs have better things to do than talk to consultants most of the time. You'll never get in the same room with them. And, like... I think like the closest my friends got were they'd be do, taking meeting minutes in the meeting where the CFO, CFO is talking. So that's as close to, quote-unquote, advising you will get to the C-suite. But in, as an investor, I was talking to CEOs. I was talking to guys who founded companies and just asking them about, okay, what, how do you think about the business? How do you think about the comparative strategy? What, what is the landscape like? And I'm just learning everything about not just the business, but the cultural nuances of, you know, how does insurance work in Denmark? You know, how, how is it different from the rest of the Nordic countries? And how is, it, how is that different from the rest of North America? Well, you know, how do medical devices in Japan work compared to the market in the U.S.? Why is it so different? Why is one profitable, one not, et cetera, et cetera? And this just gave me this huge view of the world and how there's so much that you just don't see and the news is a horrible way to see the world because it just doesn't show you any of this stuff and so that was a great experience in its entirety but I think during my time there I also experienced a lot of um, questionable moments where I'd be doing the work and it was a very different. It's a very eerie feeling of realizing that an institutional investing job was not like the investing role, the investing job that I had thought it would be like, um, and thing and the jobs I had read about. Because a lot of the people who were the investors that I admired were guys who just set up their own fund, and there were people that just did it themselves, and many were people who actually never worked for another institutional fund, and so they were able to. Con- Struck the company the way they wanted to with the philosophy that they aligned with and they had this sense of control about exactly what they did and it just made sense how they ran their funds and I realized that as an, as an institutional investor when you join a fund that all most of the time just doesn't apply to you because it's another job and you have a different mandate most institutional funds have the number one task of preserving wealth most of your clients are people who are giving in millions of dollars. And so how do you think they've gotten that? They've gotten that through taking big risks, being entrepreneurs, selling companies of their own. So they did all this stuff to grow the wealth. Now they want to preserve it. And so that's your job. Sure, you're trying to generate alpha and whatever, but your main role is to be a preserver of capital. So you don't take big risks um, or you know that kind of big bets or whatever, anything that'll freak out the clients. And so I think that was something that I realized was very really different, um, actually being on the other side. And it also made me question about just the process of investing, what kind of process that I liked. Did I want to be the kind of investor that just sat behind a desk all day and just 
read annual reports for 50, 60, 70 hours a week? Like, is that something what, that I like? Is that how I learn? Do I learn best by reading? And those are all questions that I never really, that I had never really truly asked myself, but I was forced to ask myself during that time because I, I remember I hit a moment back in, so this was in November of the year I was working there and must have been after about the fifth, sixth, seventh month mark. And I was talking to my girlfriend over FaceTime and I was just telling her, you know what, I, I'm just not motivated anymore. It's just, it's just so weird. I'm not motivated anymore. And it, that's when I started to look back on the notes I was taking. And so something I did start when I was, when I started my job um, as an investor was I kept track of all the major activities I did and I tried to quantify them. I tried to quantify how engaged I was and how energized I was every time I did it and also wrote down why I felt that so that I could look back at it and see um, without you know, the bias of um, recency, like without the recency bias and try to have an accurate picture of at that point in time how I felt about something and be able to make a, a proper decision afterwards. And I'd also, by then, had a daily journaling habit that I've continued on, and so I've been doing that for more, more or less about three years now, and I still do it. And so I could continue to review those notes. And I, when I started reviewing those notes, I started finding holes, and I started also questioning whether this was somewhere that I would be for a long time, or whether this was a career that I would do for a long time as, as an institutional investor. And I think that was also evident when I spoke to my managers there, and we constantly mentioned I, and I don't know if I'm fitting with the I'm, I don't know if I'm fitting with the culture. I don't know if I'm fitting in with this role. I have all these questions about myself, and I'm also realizing these things that are just not a fit. Like I remember, it's weird. I, I was reviewing through my diary, and I saw an entry in I think July, <laughs> July the first good July. So it's about a month since I've started, and I wrote down. I'm probably going to leave here because I don't think this is the role for me. And I had totally forgotten I had written that down, but I had felt that and had written that down in my journal and I did not really review it until much later. And I think those were indicators of there was something missing. And I think that also showed in the investment process of, yeah, like, then how did I want it to, did I, how did I want to learn? How did I want to be in a, what kind of investor did I want to be? And when I looked at my activity logs, it was apparent that, yeah, like I want to be someone who talks a lot. I want to be someone that talks to CEOs nonstop because that's the time when I'm in flow state, you know, this complete engagement and I'm just loving it. And so I will probably need a role where I get to be way more active that way. I'll need a role where I'll get to be way more extroverted because that's just who I am. And I just need to be back in an area where I have to meet a lot more people. And that was something that I had missed when I was in the bicep role. I had never, I did not expect it to be so introverted, especially coming from a very extroverted environment like consulting or accounting where you're just with very type A loud people. And this was not like that at all. And so, you know, they say you don't know what you're missing until you don't have it anymore. And that was the case with me. And that was also a very hard thing to swallow. And I think... And the great thing is, like, I also kept track of feedback. And a lot of the feedback I was also getting from people at work was also that, yeah, you're really extroverted. Like, you really like talking to people. And that just came, I realized, yeah, that's my strength. 
my strength is just communicating with people. I think it's really obvious. I think, well, how can, how can people not build rapport with people quickly? How are you not a good communicator? But I realized that, you know, in consulting, accounting, um, at, the, at the fund, those were constantly my strength feedbacks. And even my mentor in accounting would tell me, um, after I came back from the fund, I was telling him, oh, you know, I'm talking about, I'm thinking about maybe even an operation role at a startup. And he was telling me, no, I don't think you should do that, Dan. I think you want to be in a role where you want to, you're talking to people constantly because you were really good with clients when you're an auditor. And those kind of things stick because those are the things that people see and people around you who know you value. And I realized that, yeah, it's, it's the things that are so obvious to you but not obvious to other people that are actually the true strengths. And so, yeah, that kind of uh, introspective analysis was required for me to, I think, effectively and comfortably uh, walk away from the buy side and, yeah, like not go out applying to like another fund in Toronto after I came back because, you know, the environment was also another huge thing where I wanted to be back in Toronto. I, I, I didn't realize how big of a part my social life would be. Like I always thought, oh, career first, relationship second, you know, social, you can always make friends somewhere else. You can have your girlfriend move, move in with you later. You can do long distance. But I realized that for me, as just me as a person, my personality, that doesn't work. I really, because I'm so extra, extrovertedly inclined, I'm also so impacted by my surrounding environment in terms of who I'm with and, or like lack of who I'm with. And so I realized all oh, those are very important things as well. And so, yeah, I think, um, those all led to my decision to come back to Toronto and take some time to really introspect full-time, just really ask myself all the hard questions. And that's just what I've been doing for the past year, close to a year now. Um, and I have more answers, but I also have more questions. And I think that's the nature of things. As you ask more, you end up having more questions. But it's been a journey that I've really enjoyed. And I would not have create this podcast if I never um, decided to stop and think and reflect and I'm really happy that I'm in this current position Um, you know there are moments when I'm filled with self-loathing and doubt about my choices and you know nothing makes me realize that more or feel that more than when I go to a coffee shop in the financial district in Toronto when I realized all my suits, my custom-made suits with my, you know, nice watch and dress shoes and all that are collecting dust. But, yeah, I think I've had an extremely fortunate and awesome journey so far. And I just can't seem, I just can't seem to stop wanting to try different things and seeing more. And... I think I know that now that an institutional fund is not the dream job for me. I thought it was, but I needed to do it to know that it wasn't. And I think, yeah, it's just something that will continuously evolve and change. And that's something I'm learning more as I talk to more people and try more things. But yeah, that's that's been my journey so far. Um, I think this podcast kind of went longer than expected. And, kind of happens when I ramble. I like to talk a lot. 
that's why I've done the podcast because I love talking and so I really hope that uh, I didn't bore you guys or you know if if you um, if you stuck around thanks a lot for hearing my story I, I hope it was value adding in some way at least I hope it's inter- it was entertaining um, I think that's the least I could do but if it was if I was able to add value uh, I'm really happy and so yeah I would love to hear feedback from you all my valued listeners um so definitely shoot me a note on uh, you can contact me through my website www.oldmandan.com so that's just o-l-d-m-a-n-d-a-n.com and yeah there's a contact tab there but yeah um enjoy your holidays and i hope that you continue to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast if they're also people that who want to venture out try something different or they have doubts about what they want to do or they're just curious about about what else is out there um please refer the podcast to them and yeah i hope to continue to make more cool uh podcasts for podcast episodes for you all and if you have anyone else in mind if you have anyone in your circle that you think would be really cool to have on the podcast also shoot me a note i that's how i actually really get a lot of my guests as well a lot come from referrals so i definitely appreciate that um i do all my interviews in person so anyone in toronto or vancouver is great because i go to those two places the most um but yeah so thanks thanks a lot for listening to my ramble and my story and i hope you all have had a great 2018 and are looking forward to an amazing 2019. Okay, bye everyone. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.